Hello listeners and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graeme Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and regular columnist for thegeekshow.co.uk and horrified the British horror website. I've been joined this week by... Ewan Glitto, hello. Hello there. Where can people find you, Ewan? You've caught me off guard there because I've usually got a list open. Um, <laughs> you can find me on um, Cult Following, Clapper, Geek Show, uh, Narc Magazine, Any Volume, uh, Newcastle World, Daily Star, uh, Twitter and Letterboxd as well. I keep forgetting to plug that. You can get That's me on there. Yes. Uh, Ewan Gledo, E-W-A-N-G-L-E-A-D-O-W. And I, I tend to do most of my shitposting on there, so that, that's the best place <laughs> to reach me. Most of your shitposting on either Letterboxd or this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, pretty much. It's I, I, I like appearing on these things because I feel like I've got free reign where elsewhere I, I, I don't <laughs> really have. I, I've got like professional litmus tests to sort of jump hoops through. But here yeah. I can just be myself, which is... Tiring okay. for some. <laughs> we, we have absolutely no interest in professionalism at all around here. Oh, so I mean, yeah. I'm wearing a blazer, but that's because it's, it's a bit cold today. Well, I thought it was a themed blazer. I thought it was a conceptual blazer. I I, I, I wish I could dress as well as Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> I, I really do. I've got the glasses for it, but... <laughs> yes. Listeners, this week we are dealing with the work of perennial greatest living Englishman candidate Jarvis Cocker former frontman of the band Pulp, now in Jav is. And there's actually, there's more of a screen CV. There are more Cocker-related movies and TV shows than I think people might think. There is Pulp, a <laughs> film about life, death and supermarkets, which you've just been on. Uh, what, what was yes, uh, Death by Adaptation, yes. where I got to talk about uh, life, death and supermarkets and then mother, brother, lover. Mm. Um, which has just such a lovely rule of three. Yes. Oh, amazing. Mother, brother, lover, nothing better. And then I've got this hefty bugger as well. Um, pop that pop, a pun it, which it, I only recently got. It's very nice. It's um, If you drop this on someone's head, it's, it's going to deal damage. But um, it's going <laughs> to remain on the shelf for the time being. Until I find a good salesman on eBay to sell a signed copy to. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's my, my pride and joy. <laughs> <laughs> Sleep with it under my pillow every night, just in case. But that, in terms of other Cocker-related films, I mean, he's worked with Wes Anderson twice yeah. uh, on Fantastic Mr. Fox and uh, The French Dispatch. Yeah. He's been in. He was in one of the Harry Potter films. Wasn't he was he? in Goblet of Fire as um. I'm not even going to bother trying to remember the name because I've I've erased that from my memory. <laughs> but I do know it was um. Was it Steve Mackey was with him as well? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Bass, and I think there was a member of Radiohead there. Yeah, I think uh, Johnny Greenwood's in there. Johnny as Greenwood's well. in it as well. Yeah, kind of strange that that's sort of the the launch pad for him working. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson on all these great films. Yeah, he's got his foot in the door. 
I might have forgotten it if it wasn't for the fact that someone does have a list on Letterboxd for films where Johnny Green would appear on the soundtrack, and it is like There Will Be Blood and The Power of the Dog and Norwegian Wood, and that one Harry Potter film where he was in the band at some Hogwarts school dance. What was that? So, do the Hippogriff. Oh, God. That was it. Yes. That was. <laughs> I, I remember that was the first Harry Potter I saw in cinemas. That was, was I'll it, have been seven at the time. Was um, it because of the Jarvis it, Cocker camera? I wish, but I uh, I didn't know who Jarvis Cocker was until about 17. So mm. a, a good 10 years before I knew who he was, I was already seeing the man on the big screen. Yeah. Fantastic. He's everywhere. He was definitely everywhere in kind of British culture over the past few years as well. He's mm. appearing on like Bargain Hunt and stuff. Yes. Yeah, it's quite... Uh quite a range of appearances for a man who, unless I'm misreading uh, the articles, a man who lives in a cave now. That's a bit <laughs> odd. Why does he do that? It's something about the acoustics, I believe. Um, <laughs> th- th- there's some real mystifying quality to recording a whole live set in a cavern in, I think it was the Peak District, and then just subsequently removing it from the internet and just releasing one song. A very good set, though. Um, yeah. yeah, he's onto this whole not environmentalist. Oh, I mean, he is as well, because he did that sound dub with Riton, who's a DJ, and they did a, an environmental dubstep type thing. I don't think dubstep's the right word, but it was like very bouncy. Not my right. cup of tea, but it was very environmentally charged, and I suppose the big cave thing at the moment sort of following that suit. There's a kind of nature writing quality to it, isn't it? It's it's very yeah. Robert McFarlane. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, I think it was. Is it this? I think the double spread of this. Yeah, the double spread of Beyond the Pales just caves. Yes. Which um didn't make much sense, but you do your job. Not a lot. Strange fella. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we are going a bit further back. Uh, in his career to a time yeah. I, I would say just after his his Britpop peak just after yeah. he'd been briefly ubiquitous thanks to the 1996 pulp album Different Class and when yeah. by his own admission he was in at serious risk of becoming Britain's premier Jarvis Cocker impersonator Was it around this period that he was going to stuff like the Action Man premiere and essentially <laughs> appearing on every show he could get his hands on. Yes. And, and is... I think part of that is sort of logical, because part of the reason why Pulp came up as as sort of pop stars after a very long period of slogging away on indie labels, and part of that was because Britpop was happening and the prevailing winds were at their back in a way that they hadn't been in the 80s. But part of it was also because Jarvis Cocker knew that part of the joy of following a pop star as a fan is seeing them pop up on any old mad shit and <laughs> briefly sort of bending the, the the ceremonies to their advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think he, he took it to the extreme, especially even after the, the post-different class phase, which, you know, like, like the documentary we're going to talk about, is... I feel like that's one of the main reasons behind it. Channel 4 has gone to him and said, you're quite prolific in the field of everything at the moment. Would you like to come and do a documentary for us? And and being the opportunist he is, absolutely, yeah, of course. I think it was 
he would always appear on like game shows and stuff. And he still does a little bit. He did um catchphrase a, a couple of years ago. Did he? Yeah, he did. The, the Stephen Mulhern one. Um, <laughs> and I always get because te- my friends know I'm a huge fan. I'll always get a text saying something like, oh, you've seen Ward Jarvis on telly. It's like, oh, that would be brilliant. Well, I don't watch TV. I know that's, I own a TV there, but it doesn't have, like, satellites in it. That's mm. just so I watch still game from my bed. That's, <laughs> you know. But it, it's it's really warm. Like, it, it heats up immediately. It's like a sauna. But right. It's fantastic. It's like heating without the heat. It's <laughs> unbelievable. But, um, yeah, he's on everything, isn't he? Well, yeah. or he was for a period and then it kind of not diminished but it was an active step away of like I don't need to do this anymore yeah I think it's one of those things where if you're on the way up there's an obvious utility to appearing on anything and if you're in your what the pet shop boys called post imperial phase you know it can be kind of fun to turn up on catchphrase and bark and yeah. hunt and have everyone go that's Jarvis Cocker <laughs> um, but there's a certain sort of innocent fun to that and yeah. when you're actually a big star appearing on random shit just looks tacky. You know, it just makes people sick of you. Yeah. At some point it capsizes. I think the best example of that's probably Bono, who yeah. <laughs> now whenever he appears, everyone goes, oh, not Bono, despite the fact that you two are quite good. And it's, uh, there are certain artists, uh, and for me it's like Liam Gallagher, just seeing them pop up, it's like, you know what you're going to get, you know, the rigmarole, this yeah. is what they do. And it's like you said earlier, it's, it becomes a caricature of itself. Um, mm. I can't think of many artists that have like a fine line between appearing just the right amount and also maintaining that credibility of consistently where it's, oh, look who it is. Maybe Johnny yeah. Marr or someone like that, as in when he did that quick set with the killers at Glastonbury. Oh, even, ironically, pet shop boys Johnny well. Marv, I think, has yeah. to be saved from himself. I mean, it's uh, the one plus side to BBC for having its budget cut back and back is that there was a time when every single new music documentary on BBC Four had an interview with Johnny Marv in the same pub every single week. And you think, it, it, you know, as much goodwill as there is in my heart for Johnny Marv, and there is a lot, but yeah, he, he needs to have someone say, you know, you don't need to do a talking head for every single band. No, absolutely not. And I think there was, I think we're going to head into a big period where documentaries are doing that more often. Um, mm. But I remember there was one Britpop documentary called Live Forever, which yeah. was essentially collect all of the Britpop figureheads. You've got the Gallagher brothers, Damon Albay, and Jarvis Cocker, and have them say absolutely nothing of interest for an <laughs> hour and a half. And it was, it was just so strange. I think I watched it when I was I had a fever, so it didn't make sense anyway. But but that was in like about I, I remember that coming out. That was in like about two thousand and three, two thousand two, yeah, yeah. which is far too close to have any sort of interesting perspective yeah. on what happened. And I think the only person I can imagine being interested in that is Jarvis, who seemed to have perspective on his period as a massive pop star. As yeah. soon as it happened, he seemed to understand the sort of pitfalls of it immediately. Do you think a lot of that came from how long he spent trying to become a pop star? I think he it had did, yeah. Like, as smart as albums. it is, I, I don't think that 
if 20-something Jarvis had been as big as 30-something Jarvis, I don't think he would have released This Is Hardcore. I don't oh, think he could not. have had that sort of wisdom about it. No, absolutely not. And I, I think I should just say, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know what you think, but I'm still tossing up the debate between is it is the best pulp album, This Is Hardcore, a different class? I've got a hardcore shirt on now. But yeah. I, I, Mm, I don't know. I don't I mean, know. I mean, they're both fantastic, but may I yeah. cut the Guardian knot here and Ooh. say we love life? Really? What the? Yeah. You know what? I I would, but I cannot stand the trees. <laughs> I just, it's like, <laughs> it's like nothing but flowers from Talking Heads, but without the sustenance. It's, right. Right. But I I I do have a soft spot for Wheel of Life because Sunrise is incredible and bad yeah. cover version just oozes that Scott Walker produ- production influence. It's Yes. And and the the amount of like undercurrent hits on there like the night that Minnie Timpley died Great and Wicker song. Man. Yeah. Beautiful. It's it's also got like a lot of his best lyrics, I think. And if I ever want to sell someone on the idea of Jarvis Cocker as a great lyricist, Rather than go to common people, which they will probably yeah. have heard already and may not have paid much attention to, I will point out that there that Wicker Man contains the lyric beneath the old tree bar factory that burned down in the early 70s, leaving an antiquated sweet shop smell and caverns of new garden caramel. I mean, fucking Unbelievable. hell. Yeah. No need to be that good for that many years. Like yeah. even even now, I think swanky modes that he didn't I mean you've spoken about Beyond the Pale before and I wasn't yeah. really that big a fan of it I, I truly hand on heart it's probably in my top 10 of all time now that I've had the chance to read this to it. I love oh, that well. album yeah. it's phenomenal and I couldn't get enough of it and I remember listen, I have had the, the absolute luxury and pleasure of hearing swanky modes live Yeah, that, it, beautiful Like the, the lyrics in that song are just it, it, it is the smartest writing I've heard him do since the start of his career mm. that it's it's on that level of just I, I, speechless for how good it was i mean swanky um, mode's name checks t-side so it's obviously got oh, a place in my heart yeah i mean uh, he, he changed it to tyneside when he, <laughs> when he performed it up here so i don't know how you feel about that that's fine that's fine I, i'm <laughs> i'm a fan of regionalism in pop music <laughs> I it's remember brilliant. seeing them. Yeah. I saw the Manic Street Preachers when they were touring. This is my truth. Tell me yours. And James Dean Bradfield gave the crowd the permission to sing along to Tsunami as if it was Toonami. <laughs> Said, you know, we we won't mind if you change the lyrics. <laughs> it's brilliant. And I think the modern equivalent of that is Sam Fender, who's essentially inherited the Newcastle spirit and just gone mm. off and said. Look at the culture we've got up here. It's better than yours. Sing along. It's just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but we're talking about, uh, this is quite a, a good sort of way in, isn't it? Cause we're talking about all these little small byways and places outside of the mainstream where culture can congregate and gather its strength before going onto the national stage. And that is, in a great sense, what, our the mini series we are reviewing today is about we are reviewing journeys into the outside with Jarvis Cocker a 1999 three-part documentary by Jarvis Cocker and Martin Wallace his friends uh, the video artist where he goes around various locations all around the world looking at environments created by 
and this is a, this is a I mean what's the what's the terminology they're artists who haven't had formal training is the thing uh there is a word for that um Amateur well, they art? Can, no. They call it, uh, it, around here we call it outside of art. In yeah. France, it's art brut, which literally means raw art. I and do prefer that. That's stunning. Outside of art, is a, is a, it's a bit of a tricky statement because it's like the, the CVs doesn't dwell on this, and I think it's right not to dwell on this, but you can look back through the history of actual capital A proper art and say, all right, well, you know, Richard Dad was institutionalised, Vincent van Gogh was uh, mentally ill, you know, William Blake had hallucinations. If they were around after Freudianism, would they get the chance to be part of the artistic canon or would they be outsider art? And it, it's it's yeah. difficult. It's It's quite, there's something quite snobbish about saying, you know, if you're, if you don't go to an art school, as Jarvis Cocker did, as anyone who's heard the uh, opening verse of Common People will know, um, then you, you can't be like a proper artist, no matter how good you are. You can only be the best outsider artist. Yeah, it's it's such a... I think it, it's kind of... I'm, I'm just riffing on... I've just finished reading Andy Warhol's Popism, and he essentially ended that with he was no longer a pop artist because it had grown past him. Mm. And it, it, I think it's because genres are so malleable. They're just, they're always in this state of just redefining itself. And I, I think for a period, you're going to have outsider artists, this, this mm. specific group of people, these artists fit in. And it's not until you realize what a sort of arbitrary genre it is, is that everybody could probably fit in that had the circumstances been right or gone the other way. There are artists in the past, like anybody could fit in. Ralph Steadman could fit in, had the circumstances changed because that art is so unique to him and it's not really been replicated by anyone else. And I think the, the real connection with all the artists in Journeys to the Outside is they're all a bit weird, um, yes. which is wonderful. Um, it was really just quite a pleasure seeing all these. Often it was architecture a lot mm. of just unique world building on their own property yeah um which is delightful um, he he narrows it down a bit to what interests him which is specifically this idea of the visionary environment you know of course there are outsider artists who paint and who sculpt and who make video pieces yeah. probably um but what seems to interest jarvis cocker is this idea of artists who refashion the place where they live to be a part of their imagination. Yeah, I've done that in my room. I live in a hellscape, but <laughs> I, that, I think it for, for me, it's like the outside art scene there where it was like just it, essentially it was clutter made to look unique. Yeah, it, it was a lot of stuff where I, if, if you walk down the street, you'd think, oh, what's that? And then you get closer, it's like, that's someone's house and they've plastered it with beer cans or like bottles and it's really inventive and I do like that aspect of it where it is just kind of a, a, a big build of just shit that looks really <laughs> good um I think the best example is that when he heads to India and all the statues are stood in the formation and it's it, it looks brilliant but I can't imagine seeing that 
you know, down the road. I can't imagine seeing any of the art that he explores here, like in my area. But it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing to see that it is kind of just art in plain sight. It's just there. It's part of the street. It's part of the culture of the city or the town that it's in. And, and, it, and it just looks marvellous. It, it just sets yeah. itself out. Yeah, one of the most remarkable pieces of it for this reason is when he goes to see the Watts Towers in Los Angeles, which were built by an Italian immigrant called Simon Rodier. And that a lot of them are immigrants, which I think is interesting. I guess it's that kind of impulse when you're in an unfamiliar country to to create something that feels like home, even yeah. in this extreme version. But there's footage of the Watts Towers which are enormous constructions, but they exist in a completely ordinary neighbourhood. You've just got standard, like, 1960s prefab-built houses with these massive, like, cathedral-like spires sticking up behind it's them. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the equivalent we've got in my town is that there's a, a, a viewing tower next to a castle, but mm. the viewing tower doesn't look like it's finished. It looks like a Gillette razor blade stood on its fucking side. And and what's essentially <laughs> happened is that people have built this and thought, ah, yes, we can look over the landscapes, having had the foresight not to build it taller than the houses it's trying to look over makes it a bit difficult. And it just looks like a really strange modern art installation around very, not rustic, but shit houses. And it, <laughs> it just kind of looks, lots of nice old brickwork, really nice refurbished streets, massive Gillette razor. <laughs> just sticks out like a sore thumb and I, I i thought about that a lot especially in the first episode where it's kind of bric-a-brac structures that, mm. that do look unique and they do look a bit odd but the real key to them is that they don't seem all out of place yeah and it's it's so strange to see you know a, a house covered with the side of it that looks like a rock formation but it's actually like pebbles and bottles and stuff and for having that to look normal it's just it, it it's bizarre. There isn't very much of this kind of thing in Britain. We do have outsider artists, but they tend not to get involved in architecture or anything. I think the nearest example I can think of is, have you ever heard of the Headington shark? I've not, but I do like sharks. Maybe, maybe we should just take a second for you to put that into Google Images, because I'm old... not sure where I can describe it in a way that does it justice. Headington shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes. See, I, I love stuff like that. Just, <laughs> just stuff that will make people go, one, no, everybody knows that sharks, you know, natural habitat is the ocean. But I think even knowing that and the logical sense of it, seeing it stick out the side of the house, even for a moment, it's like, oh, my God, there's a shark in, trying to get into that house. That's brilliant. <laughs> there's, there's a wonderful hint of Eli Cash in the Royal Tenenbaums in how you describe this. <laughs> Everyone knows that a shark's natural habitat is in the ocean, but <laughs> what this work presupposes is maybe it's what in this the room implies <laughs> is that every shark has a home. <laughs> uh, the equivalent I can think of is have you ever been to the Metro Center in um, Yes, yeah, yeah. Newcastle. I, I don't know if it's still there. I know the Metro Center's still there, but I don't know if there's a there's a, there used to be a car heading out of the wall 
and and that's normal. I've seen loads of places do that. But the issue with this one is that it looked like it was actually going to snap off because that much of the car was actually facing out of like a brickwork wall. Where right. it's like, oh yeah, the car's exploding through. But it really does look like a gust of wind's going to take it down. And it was just so unnerving to be like yeah. six years old and walking under it. It's just. But we, <laughs> I think, yeah, the heading the sharks, beautiful, fabulous, isn't it? That's amazing. Yeah. The only like proper art I've seen, I've seen a Banksy before mm. in Hull, and I think they painted over it or something like that, but it's <laughs> not there anymore. Um, I think that's the only art I've seen in the outside world. I've seen Temple Bar in Dublin. That's no art is worth it, pound a pint. But <laughs> God, um, we, we had a Spanish gallery open recently, and yeah. uh, they couldn't afford to ship the actual exhibits over, so they've printed 3d models of the exhibits which are actually currently still in spain um so you are free to just wander in pick up the exhibits and like throw them around because they're just 3d prints and then get another one <laughs> it's it's bizarre um the future of museums isn't it i it would is, definitely yeah. go to more museums if there was a possibility <laughs> that you could just sort of dick around and play catch with an ancient <laughs> etruscan vase they, well, that's the thing. There used to be um, the Durham Light Infantry Museum, and they shut that down years ago. But there was a massive World War One tank, and there was mm. a very clear sign that said, do not climb in the tank. <laughs> so me and my friends thought, well, that's clearly just for adults. So we climbed in, and I got stuck in the front of the, uh, the <laughs> war tank. <laughs> um and I you could have the, made demands. I could have, yeah. You could like, have said, you, you know, know, I'll activate this if you don't give me <laughs> this. <laughs> I could have restarted World War One from the comfort <laughs> of Durham. Brilliant. I wish I had. But what it did do, and I think what I've <laughs> so from being just in museums and around like art and then watching journeys into the outside, it's kind of rekindled something in my mm. brain that's like i've got to go and see more of this stuff um i actually almost ordered an andy warhol print as soon as i finished watching this i was going to get the four bananas um but it's yeah, hard not I, to feel carried away by it isn't it because it's, it is it's again that kind of alice in wonderland quality of walking around in a completely normal place and suddenly finding this dreamed environment yeah it's very seductive the closest we've got in the northeast is like you spot HMV and see a two for one sale. That's like <laughs> the equivalent. Um, but no, it's it it. Th this is a very Channel Four documentary. This is like it. You know, half ten just after the football's finished. Yeah, nice and comfortable. You got a blanket. You got your cup of tea. It's like that level of documentary. And I think with or without Cocker in it, it's just so comfortable. Yeah, because you, you're learning stuff passively. You're just picking up little bits and pieces, and it's just, it's nice to be fed information without really knowing it. And it's such a visual sort of thing to be making. I mean, the the danger with a lot of arts documentaries is that the older the art gets, the less you can do with it. You know, you can you can show an interview with a living artist, but when it's Raphael or one of the other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, he's just got like a, a, a painting to close in on. But here you've got whole whole buildings, whole castles, whole parks that you can explore. And there's some amazing ones. I mean, the it's, one, yeah. Coral Castle, 
I think, mm. was a, a particular favourite where no one can quite work out how it was engineered. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. It's, a, a lot of this is mainly, why would anybody make this? Yeah. And just to throw it back to Andy Warhol, it does remind me of that sort of underground art a little bit where people were just making stuff because they found it beautiful or interesting. Whether or not it appealed to most other people didn't really matter. Yeah. Um, I always think of Empire, the uh, eight-hour oh, yes. documentary. Yeah. And I remember really hating it when I like watched it. You know, you, you watch about 10 minutes of it and think, what the fuck is this? And then actually reading up on like that bell the underground scene and that stuff and it's you kind of appreciate it a little more so well, i think at, at, at the bit well <laughs> there's, there's an equivalent of that in here isn't there there is the, yeah roger showmore who made a 20-hour film called spiritual disembarkation yeah uh, i checked it out it's not on letterbox sadly oh, so oh, unfortunately can't. i can't watch it then <laughs> i only watch things that are on letterbox these days um that's probably sums up the documentary itself quite nicely though is that you've got some very outsider art it's a very niche subject and it's very proper really it's quite mm. formal in a way to be experiencing this but the equivalent is that to engage with that you're watching uh, a brit pop icon with a fuzzy <laughs> hat yelling monsieur chomo at, like a, a a fence with a port in his hand and a carrier bag in the other and it's like that's the perfect documentarian if David yeah, Amber dressed like that, I'd watch more of his stuff. Yeah, like, Jarvis does make a good account of himself as the Britpop Nick Broomfield in this, I think. <laughs> he the does. man who constantly just goes everywhere and gets locked out of buildings wherever he goes. He's like um, Mr Magoo, but as a documentarian. <laughs> just kind of bumbling about. It's like, I think I've insulted him. I don't really know. It's well, many of them, because as you say, they're all lost yeah. people. Many of them are very easy to insult. I mean, Shomo refuses to participate in the documentary because he says he will not be a part of what he describes as fuckwit cinema. <laughs> it's, I don't think it helps that essentially Cocker, who's quite gangly and has this five o'clock shadow for the whole thing, mm. is ans asking very vague questions in broken German or French and then <laughs> is trying to translate that back in his head to I think I've upset them, I'm not quite sure <laughs> and then it's just just an escalation of real hesitancy between interviewer and interviewee and it's it, it's it's fantastic but The other one he, he offends is Robert Garcet who has a sort of what he calls an apocalypse building uh, which is there to explain his philosophy of the world and its history. Well, a philosophy that, as far as I could tell, is basically just what if the Silurian episodes of Doctor Who really happens. Um, but he, he is really prickly and calls Cocker oh, yeah. an imbecile for thinking <laughs> that apocalypse means the end of the world. It's, you know what? We all make assumptions about words, but I think apocalypse <laughs> is fairly grounded in the end of the world. Yes. It doesn't have any other connotations unless it's like an X-Men movie. It's like, yeah, Bill Callahan's best album <laughs> and the end of the world is all it means to me. It's, yeah, I think I think that's always the danger, though, with interviewing artists who are very outsider, essentially, is that 
only they can understand their work. Yeah, only they absolutely. have the correct interpretation. And they're not going to tell anyone. And I find that both horrifically annoying, but also fantastic and really, uh, I appreciate it quite a lot where it, it, it's the David Lynch effect of, oh, actually, Eraserhead's my most poetic and thematic film. Explain that. No. And yes. It, it's trying to build intrigue about something that does already have intrigue. And it just, the conversation then turns to the artist and then it just builds from there. And it's really delightful. Um, it's just such a nice flow. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it, it's one of those things where if, if you're making art that's designed to be seen and appreciated by people, you have to at some point become comfortable with people making their own interpretations. But none of these people have done that. These are people who make art purely for themselves, often for themselves to live in. So the idea that, like, Jarvis Cocker can come in and go, what it means to me is, no, no, it means this. I made it. I know what it means. Hello, I wrote a song about hiding in a wardrobe. I'm here to tell you what your art means. <laughs> Fantastic. Really, for three episodes, we, we've yeah. paid a lengthy price. It's... I think it's clear that what drives this documentary is that he's passionate about the art mm. he's exploring, which I think is the, the baseline for any documentary. It's yeah. why I like Louis Theroux so much, which is essentially the, the, the broadest example I can think of, where it's he's looking at these subjects not because they've got mass appeal or because the, there are a lot of people involved with them, but because it's interesting. Yeah, And I think a lot of documentarianism, it essentially boils down to people are going out to find interesting things in the hopes that others will find it interesting as well. Yeah. Whereas if you're going to cover, say, like uh, the most hated family in America, for instance, you've got a sort of reason, well, I find this interesting. Other people are going to find it interesting for this reason. Yeah. And I think the big appeal of outsider art is that there is so little really trying to document it. I think Journeys into the Outside is probably one of the few that I've heard of that's actually trying to, to engage with people that really don't want anything to do with people. Yeah, yeah. I can think of, like, films about individual outsider artists, but I'm trying to think of another, like, TV work about outsider art as a field, and I just cannot. I don't See, think the, anyone yeah. else has done it. The only documentaries I can think of in my very shuttered mind is there's a couple on Banksy, mm. there's one on Ralph Steadman, and there's that Vincent van Gogh one uh, with Chris O'Dowd. <laughs> Loving Vincent. Oh, that's not even that's a documentary. It, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, in terms of documentary stuff, like I can think of there have been films about people like Henry Darger or Daniel Johnson who, who are outsider artists. Um, but that's not quite what this is. And I think it would probably not hang together if it didn't have that element you mentioned of this very fannish presenter who was you know saying i'll show you why this is great yeah and it's oddly enough that's why i not dislike but i think it's the reason i think life death and supermarket death life death and supermarkets the pulp documentary doesn't work is that a lot of it is the director florian habich going isn't pulp amazing look at this look at this and then he sort of doesn't get the point yeah um the Habich documentary, I remember seeing when it first came out, and like you, I think it, it would be too harsh to say it doesn't work, but it's not what I wanted it to be. And I think 
part of it's because it, it came out at that time where there seemed to be a constant flow of music documentaries and bands about it. Like any band with a big enough cult following would get a film made about them. It still happens to some extent. But I think there were a lot of people who seemed to to take that as a spur to make something where they could say, ah, it's not just a normal music documentary. And throughout all of the bits with like pulp fans and things like that, I was thinking, I could have actually gone for a straight documentary about pulp. I think their story yeah. is interesting enough and they are eloquent enough to make that worth watching, you know? Without a doubt, yeah. It's it's a weird blend between it kind of wants to be a concert film, it kind of wants to be a documentary on Sheffield, it kind of wants to be a pulp documentary, mm. and it's kind of nothing. <laughs> like, I do enjoy it, yeah. but the last time I watched it... Um, I think it's just bad circumstances. Domino's mugged at my order, spilled a can of lemonade on myself, and it just wasn't very good. Trashy. So it's the big triple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember, I think a lot of Pulp and Jarvis Cocker, I remember from uni, because mm. um, that's when I like really got into the first vinyl I ever bought was different class. Um, and I, my flatmates, I know they won't listen to this, but they'll, they'll, they fucking hate me. For, <laughs> I still speak to a couple of them, but they're like, Every time, and they're the same people that text us like, "Oh, Cocker's on the telly," the because I would just blast. This is hardcore and different <laughs> class is the sort of pre-drinks music. I remember the very first night I had in my first year flat, I had an iPod, and I was the only one that had a speaker. Therefore, my speaker, my music, <laughs> and the only albums I had on the iPod were the Mamma Mia soundtrack, sang by Colin Firth and the other various and cast Pierce Brosnan. The Shams and Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Oh, the yeah. man himself. And the only other album I had was Pulse Gift Recordings, <laughs> which is like <laughs> just before. So we're all sat around listening to like, Oh, you gone, gone. And it's like, we're off to see Tom Zanetti at a nightclub. And it's like, just such a different mood when you go and see a DJ and, just... and you've spent. 20 minutes listening to the Sheffield Sex City instrumentals. <laughs> but Can we just cycle back a bit to this extraordinary thing where you were getting ready to drink, to go out for a drink to either different class or this is hardcore. Now, I yes. have drank and listened to both those albums, but I will say that the kind of drinking you do when you're listening to different classes oh, is very yeah. different to the kind of drinking you do when you're listening to this is hardcore. I'll tell you a very embarrassing story. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Um, there's a nightclub in Sunderland, because I went to University of Sunderland, big up the Sunderland Town Massive. Um, I went to Sunderland Uni, and there was a nightclub there called Independent. Um, mm. We would go every Friday, sometimes a Saturday, me on a Tuesday, because I just for first year, I would just drink. It was fantastic. Um, but every time I went, we would go straight upstairs because that was where like Arctic Monkeys was played and Elvis Costello and like that music. Mm. And every single night, without fail, we, we whether it was 11 at night when it was opened or four in the morning when it closed, I would always request Disco 2000 by Pulp. And it got to a point where Aaron, the DJ, just knew me as Pulp Guy because I would always wear... <laughs> the same denim jacket, a pulp t-shirt, <laughs> and he would just know that I wanted to do it. Because I, I would get quite drunk, and I had my own dance routine to Disco 2000. I would tear it up. Brilliant. Uh, that was four minutes and a half seconds. I was 
at Bliss, and as soon as it was finished, I was ready to go home because that was the only song I'm dancing to. I think um, what was it? Uh, when wh- that lyric where it goes, "Oh Deborah, do you recall?" I would mm. go like that and then call. I was like, "Oh, just <laughs> thinking back to it." But I, I remember one night we I'd done the Disco Two Thousand routine. The, the the audience loved it. Um, <laughs> and I, I got home and I thought you know what I'm not, not quite tired yet. I had a couple more drinks and I listened to this is hardcore and, yeah. and just the mood sours immediately like <laughs> when you're sat listening to help the agent at five in the morning your flatmates are trying to get to sleep I think that was the same night I got back and I was really thirsty and it's like oh you know what would hit the spa after a night a heavy drink a nice glass of milk so I had a nice big glass of milk and I thought that's quite hit the spot. But do you know what would be better? Another big glass of milk. And I woke up about two hours after finishing hardcore and I threw up into a bin we'd kept on the balcony from when our <laughs> flatmate had slipped their disc and was throwing up into a bucket constantly. And I remember hearing footsteps and someone had come out onto the balcony to check on me. Or So I thought it was my flatmate asking me to throw up a little quieter because they, they were trying to get to sleep and they'd left their window open. Um but that could but, be your lyric on This Is Hardcore, isn't oh, it? Oh, without a doubt, yeah, because This Is Hardcore is essentially the throw-up from Britpop being a massive high. Yes. Um, some of the lyrics on This Is Hardcore are just beautiful. I, I'm very glad that you uh, we brought up Life, Death and Supermarts because there's a bit in there where Richard Hawley's in a vinyl shop and he's mm. talking about This Is Hardcore and he says it's essentially one of the, the best bits of music he's ever heard. And just to have Hawley say that, it feels like yeah. a bit more reassuring because it, it, it's stunning. It, it's a beautiful song. It's, I, I always have like a rotor of pulp songs that are like, oh, this is my favourite this week. I think This Is Hardcore has probably got the most claim to that though. I think This Is Hardcore is a spectacular song. Um, I think in terms of my favourites, like you, I often vacillate, but the two I often land on the most. No, I think there's a trinity. I do think you have to say common people. I don't think yeah. familiarity has blunted common people. I think it can be played on the radio as much as anyone likes, and it's still a spectacular song. It's it's amazingly not been sort of deflated as no. Wonderwall has or as Park Life has. It, mm. It's still managed to... I, I think it's probably because there's a bit more meaning to common people than yeah you know wonderwall but that that's one of the things that kind of dispirits me a bit when you you hear like songs from what is you know my childhood on the radio from that brit pop either you think god people were really happy having songs that just weren't about anything at that point weren't they good old country housing (laughs) you just rhyme real with feel that's it. That's your stunning starter kiss. Yeah. There's your four times platinum selling album, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy. <laughs> uh, I've already had enough trouble with Oasis fans when I've said I don't like them. Not them. I mean, like Oasis. I don't hate all Oasis fans. I'm just not a fan of Oasis, but mm-hmm. don't say that in public, as I have now. Oh, I've said it many times, and I'll happily say it again, and I'll say it again and again until, you know, Middlesbrough buskers stop playing Wonderwall. <laughs> God. Yeah, it's it's really like a, a disease. It yeah. truly is. It's like I, I, I kind of hate it because of not not just because the music isn't that good, but the stereotype it's created, the sort yeah. of 
Burgund Hat Festival going Strongbow Dark Fruits, fucking biblical sort of <laughs> personality. And it's amazing that that's like popular. I don't get it. I, I like a dark fruit. I do, but not. <laughs> that, that wasn't the bit I thought you objected <laughs> that wasn't the to issue, the most. No. That wasn't the problem. I used to drink dark fruits all the time. I have no qualms with that. I used to. Want you to don't have to defend yourself against the dark fruits lobby, you, and they're not fucking listening. Oh, you'd be surprised. They're everywhere these days. Back in my day, we didn't have this problem. Everyone just used to listen to the Hoosiers. Much easier. God. But it's, I think as well, it's got that nostalgia factor now where it's like my generation just missed out on it. We had the Spice Girls and Coldplay, so we were really clamoring for proper music. Yeah. And yeah. the offset of that was. Oh, Oasis. Oh, Blur. And then nothing else because digging anywhere past that is too much effort. Like, you're not going to get many people from like my uni courses into the St. Eddie N on the bus home, you know? But they fucking should. They should. Yeah. 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 It's, I think it's rather telling as well. It's kind of like they listen to the bands Oasis inspired, like Kasabi and like Catfish and the Bottlemen, who are not very good and have the same issues as Oasis. Mm. Um, it, I, I do think there is comfort to have with familiar music. I just think you can get familiarity from good music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, Mostly I just find the conservatism of Oasis irritating in uh, increasingly in a political sense now with Noel Gallagher, but all, always yeah. in an artistic sense. And I think I've mentioned this before, I think when we did the Spike Girl show, but my parents were of different generations. So I got like a, my dad, an older dad, a younger mum, and she had a little brother. So I got like a really broad spectrum of music when I was growing up. And I knew that my dad liked the Beatles and Dusty Springfield, and my mum liked the Teardrop Explodes and the Jam, and my uncle liked Sonic Youth and Pavement. And I thought, this is what music is about. These are yeah. these fabulous weirdos creating sort of elaborate fantasy worlds. And then it, and then it's my turn, and what we get is five ugly blokes in duffel coats, <laughs> and you just think, what's gone wrong here? I think it's the standard declined so rapidly, mm. um, and I, I don't know how it happened. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I think there's been a bit of a revival for sort of the music coming out now. Um, I look at stuff like Yard Act and Wet Leg and just think that's fantastic. I love Wet Leg. Amazing. Yeah. Chase Lounge should not work as a song as well as it does, but monumental. I think it's like we're in a bit of a resurgence now because a lot of bands for the past five or six years were just, if we replicate Oasis or if we do what Ed Sheeran does and just very pop, very oriented in that state of mind, it just got quite dull. And it's Mm. ironically just to link it back. It's the outsider art of music yes. that's coming to the forefront now. Sam Fender, Yard Act, Wet Leg, I'll, I'll, Black Country, New Road. Phenomenal. Even outside of rock music, it's mm. really interesting to me to hear that kind of stuff um, recreated by people who weren't around for it the first time. Like when I was young, I was an absolute rockist snob. Like, it took me ages to get into hip-hop, despite hip-hop in the 90s being objectively good. Fantastic, yeah. So, for me, it's really exciting to hear someone like Pink Panther S, who's based on this kind of, um, like, early UK garage, kind of artful dodger, shy effects kind of style that, at the time, I would not allow myself to enjoy because I didn't think it was proper music. But now I'm hearing it through the ears of someone raised on it. 
it clicks, you know, and I really yeah. enjoy that. I think that's the biggest barrier to sort of get over when people are sort of, I, I, it's going to sound like a, I'm a pretentious arsehole, but I'm allowed to do that because I'm, I'm verified on Twitter. So it's, it's all right. <laughs> I can get away with it. Um, a lot of essentially all art has the popularity phase of mm. for film. It's like fight club in the dark night inception, no country for old men, that sort of stuff. Really good pieces of film that would hopefully expand someone. It, it yeah. would flicker an interest that says, all right, what's beyond that. Oasis is like that. It's okay. Th- this is listenable. I enjoy this. What else is there from that period? Mm. And it's, it just startles me that, not a lot of people have gone, oh, I wonder what this suede thing is. That, that's not happened. And I think yeah. it's because a, a lot of Britpop's quite like wildly different. Oasis is not just the most accessible, but the most simple and plain. It's yeah. like plain toast. If it's your favourite, then you've got a problem. But every now and then, a bit of plain toast, that's all right. Yeah. If, if you're feeling ill, you may have some Oasis. <laughs> if not, steer clear. Yeah, because when Britpop launched, the first music magazine front page had, I, I think, like, the big launch one was something like Justine Frischman, Tom York, and Brett Anderson. And, of course, Radiohead, like, put massive clear blue water yeah. in between themselves and Britpop immediately. But that was what the music press thought the scene was going to be. And you think, what's the common thread here because none of these bands sound anything like each other i think it was like a panicked knee-jerk reaction of oh there's a lot of british bands that are doing quite well into a group they go yeah and it's i think it's like a, from reading good pop bad pop it feels like brit pop's a bit of a dirty word it's yeah. like it's almost as bad as like a swear in a pg film <laughs> and it's it, it i, I kind of don't blame a lot of artists trying to distance themselves for that others yeah. have had more success than others like damon albert essentially reinventing a, a whole culture of music with gorillas mm, mm. which is monumental that the fact that he was dipping in and out of gorillas and blur and then do his own thing as well yeah. he's got such a broad range that it kind of removes him from that great job well done jarvis cocker has gone down the artsy route of like here's a french album which was bloody marvelous this it is great isn't it the french dispatch soundtrack yeah i remember um i, I was in hull on holiday yeah <laughs> which is a hard hard to believe but um <laughs> hull and holiday never go together but um no hassle and hustle hull 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 just had a breakdown uh yeah I remember it It actually released when I was on the train back, so I downloaded it really quickly, and I, I for the whole two-hour train trip, just that on loop, beautiful. Mm. I, I used to I used to work at my old uni, um, and every day I would have to get up at, at about quarter to six in the morning to get to work, so I would have to take... We'd, we'd drive to Durham and then two trains, and I would always listen to Aline on the train into Newcastle. It just sort of became synonymous with my morning. Yeah. And it's a lot of pulp and Jarvis Cocker songs in general have become synonymous with various important moments in my uni life. Yes. And yes. it's it's kind of hard to pull it out. You know, I can't listen to Disco 2000 with thinking about, without thinking of like blue pints and falling down the stairs of a nightclub. Yeah. And I, like, it, it's like I've got a big bundle here and it's just stuck together. And it's like, that's just a big block of memories that. Yeah. It's really yeah. like, there's very few albums and artists where I'm like, 
that just conjures up so many memories. And I think it's nice. Particular radio, I had a particular alarm clock radio that Sunrise always reminds me of because when it was first played on the radio, I was listening to it on that radio. And that's that is how it it, it beds into your life like that. It's stunning how difficult it is to have a song in bed like that, but how much of it ended up being pulled. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I remember actually I got um, After You on vinyl, um, but the Soul Wax edition, Uh, because the the Rough Trade one, which Mm. is, I remember it as well, only because it doesn't work. Um, (laughs) It skips about halfway into the verse and just jumps. But I never got rid of it, because it just, it became synonymous with uni, and I just kept it. And the music is in in great to a great degree intended to do that, isn't it? It's like yeah. that bit on I Spy where he's imagining blue plaques for all of the sort of banal kind of coming yeah. of age things that he's done in his life. It's so specific that if it clicks with you, it will click with you because you have had a similar experience yourself. It's it's. I find myself very lucky that I kind of clicked with Pulp when I did because I can't be asked to search for more new music. I usually just get it <laughs> dropped into my inbox now. It's like, yeah. oh, can you check out this new album? No. Um, <laughs> so I got very lucky to sort of find a band that had such range that yeah. had a song for every moment, essentially, which was, you know, a real treat to dive into because, uh, well, I, I, <laughs> there's a lot. And I think it's it's very nice to chart the different phases where it essentially went from this Smith sounding influence to a bit weird Euro pop, mm. and then gradually what became the Britpop sound, which is vaguely indefinable. It is, and it's it's made particularly weird by having pulp there. Like without pulp, you could say, ah, well, Britpop is a guitar-driven fusion of, I guess, kind of. You know, you can hear your bits of post-punk with bands like Elastica and Sleeper. You can hear your bits of 60s pop, obviously, with Oasis and Blur. A bit? That's the, yeah, that's the kind of, <laughs> that's the kind of palette from most yeah. grit pop. But the fact that Pulp had what were at the time a very uncool set of influences. <laughs> I mean, this was before disco had really been reassessed and seen as being like a major musical movement and that they were playing this stuff on synthesizers that often sounded like parodically cheap they weren't like the synthesizers on other 90s records it's like an everyday casio just landed straight on it it's lovely it it feels very homegrown i think that's it it's that homely appeal despite it sounding very lavish at times. I always remember, um, I read Truth and Beauty, the story of Pulp a couple of years ago. Great book. Fantastic. I wish I hadn't got rid of my copy, but I had to make it space. But mm. um, there was a, a little anecdote about uh, common people, where it's like it was essentially 50 layers of different instruments and sound effects and everything. And then it was like, well, what's going to piece this together? There's something needed. And then they added an acoustic guitar that you can't hear, but it just pulled it all together and it's yeah remarkable how many instruments pulp would use as opposed to how few oasis would use yes that, that's yeah. not even like that sounds like a knock but it's not it's like i've i realized especially 
now that I've listened to stuff like Scott Walker and Elvis Costello's 80s output, it's like, I'm really impressed by orchestral type songs. If mm. you've got loads of instruments and you're using them well, yeah. I always think of Richard Hawley's Valentine, where it's like, you don't really need the violins and the orchestra behind the chorus, but it's nice that it's there. It's really nice. It's like and when it's... I listen to, I mean, the Beach Boys are an obvious touchstone for this, but when I listen to one of the more straight-ahead, rocky Beach Boys songs, when I listen to something like Long Promised Road or That's Not Me, and you think, well, it's kind of like rock music, but it's not like rock music where the band's thinking, we've got a guitarist, we've got a bassist, we've got a drummer, let's have them all start at the same time, all end at the same time. That song, yeah. you know, things drop out depending on whether the song needs it. It's rock music made by people who are used to arranging rather than playing. Yeah, it's it's the creativity of tools that are available to everyone, essentially. It's... Mm. I don't think Oasis could do what the Velvet Underground did, for instance. Well, and I also if, well, if you, well, if if you say what they did and mean heroin, yes, they well, could, yes, they could. Other than that, I'm always thinking back to essentially, which is the the, the core influence of the Beatles was John Lennon and the Beatles. Mm. Did I say Beatles twice? Core influence of Oasis was the Beatles. I'm not saying the Beatles were influenced by the Beatles. That would be quite uh, phenomenal. Yeah, there's a Doctor (laughs) Who episode in that. (laughs) Maybe it would have been Ringo's solo albums would be a bit better, but (laughs) a man can dream. (laughs) Um, There is a difference between influence and borderline copyright theft. Yeah. Influence is... Jarvis Cocker dressing a bit like Elvis Costello and Marky Smith from The Fall. Copyright mm. theft is covering I Am The Walrus and sticking it on as a bonus CD track. <laughs> um, and I don't want to devolve into knocking Oasis too much because I, I, I could be here for hours. But <laughs> I think the, the core difference is I think, I think both you and me are a bit outsider ourselves and I think that may be why we prefer outsider art as opposed to what's essentially pop. Yeah, I mean and it's strange because Jarvis Cocker was always insistent that he wanted Pulp to be a pop band and he was always he always called them a pop group at a time when other like in British indie bands would have run a mile from those words but I, I do know what you mean, it's like after Common People, the next single they put out was Misshapes and that's a, a real statement of defiance that's explaining yeah. that they are outside of mainstream culture that they don't want to fit into the to the world as it is let like, alone it's, you know it's the bit stars. at the end where it's the writing on the toilet and i've mm. got it on a coaster actually which <laughs> is a, the live on bit and it's it, it's amazing how much Pulp, so like the live on stuff kind of became a bit synonymous and and if, if you asked anybody for an image of what Britpop was there's two that spring to mind and neither of them have the Gallagher's or Albane in it and it's it, it's either Brett Anderson on the front of I think it was NME yeah, in front of the yeah. Union Jack or Jarvis Cocker doing the Kez pose from yeah. uh, which is like considering they essentially weren't the forefront of Britpop it's it's startling that they are sort of the, the cultural embed of imagery for that period. And I think part of the the reason why 
sort of they managed to get out with dignity is because around 1997, Britpop became a battle of who can dismantle this thing fastest. You know, this is a bomb that's going to go off. Who's going to defuse it? And Blur got in very early with their self-titled album. Yes, yeah. Where they'd gone, like, within a couple of years from making The Great Escape, which is so Britpop, it makes you want to hurl, to making something that has nothing to do with that sound at all. What's that Blur song on that album, on the B-side? Dr... Mangle's Quango or something. Oh, Mr. Robinson's Quango. Mr. Yes. Robinson's Quango. I remember we did that podcast on Blur. The, yeah. The B side is a very different story to the A side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, it, it was who can dismantle it first. Um, who dismantled it worse? I don't know, be here now springs to mind. Well, that was accidental dismantling. They were looking yeah. to keep the party going and they cleared the room. That's it's amazing. It's like thinking Barry White will work at a house party. You stick it on, you hope for the best. Nah. Um and I think I mean even even the efforts that were kind of jaded by the overindulgence of the period, like Swayed in 99 still had some really good songs to rely on, like Everything Will Flow and She's in Fashion are just fantastic As songs. Asbestos. 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 Oh, so good. Yeah. I, it's like even even those janky albums were like, they, they're really getting sick of the period. But I think, obviously, we're on a bloody pulp episode of the podcast and it's, this is hardcore, like the quintessential breakdown of Britpop. This is hardcore is the one that is most aware of what it is doing, I think, and yeah. I not in a way that it is sort of ironic or hedging its bets. It's aware of what it's doing, and that's giving it real purpose. It's on the attack. Yeah. It's it's that lyric and party hard. It's um your uncle's psychosis arrived. Yes, it's amazing. Party Hard um, is incredible. It is so queasy. And the, the sound on it is just, it, it's so distorted that the distortion stops feeling warm. It's kind of like the when people do digital distortion now when it sounds just slightly off, but they're actually going for it. It's a, it's an uncanny valley rock song. It's it like st- a big stadium rock song that's been put together slightly wrong and it's freaking you out. I love how Party Hard has dropped essentially in between two of the slowest songs on that album. Yes. Bar, bar TV movie. It's in, in the middle of Dishes and Help the Aged, which is <laughs> the perfect placement for it. Um, but I think there's, I mean, I've got the, the deluxe edition, uh, which has like the, the failed Bond theme song. And, oh, yes. Uh, we the are professional. the boys. And... We are the boys. Yeah. The professional is phenomenal. Because that's just an, a very clear and obvious takedown, not of the people that listen to Pulp's albums, but the work itself, where it's, yeah. I, I only give you what you've come to expect, just another song about single mothers and sex. And that's magical, right? That's, you know. Yeah, beautiful. It's a great couplet. <laughs> and I fantastic. think that's that's obviously what's propelled his sort of reassessment and rediscovery now is the fact that the lyrics are so good and he can put out a book like Mother Brother Lover, which is a collection of footnoted yeah. lyrics, which, I mean, if 90% of bands from that either did something like that, you'd want to throw rotten fruits at them. Oh, God, yeah. I think it's, you know, the, the only people who can get away with something like that is the people that are essentially lyricists first and 
essentially perform as second. I think of people yeah. like Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan on that level, um, where it's their lyrics can tell a real story with or without music. Yeah. I can't think of many artists that can do that. I remember around the same time, different generation, obviously, but around the same time, there was a book of Ian Jury's collected lyrics put out, and I would bracket him in the same caliber, yeah. really. Yeah. I think the, 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 the real interesting difference between Ian Jury and Jarvis Cocker, though, is that it's kind of, you can really chart Ian Jury's influence on stuff mm. like Madness, on stuff like Paul McCartney, especially that cover album they did of all of his best tracks, or well, yeah. best tracks. I've already been down that avenue with that bloody David Bowie one. Um, <laughs> but I think it's... Uh, my friend asked me, it's like, what is the influence of Britpop? And I, I, I don't know, because I think it's still too early to figure mm. out what its influence was. Obviously, there's Oasis with their um, just bastardization of music, essentially. <laughs> and then you've got the Suede with its very art-pop roots. Um I couldn't really tell you who they've influenced, but I, I don't think it's because they haven't influenced anyone. I think it's because these bands are still preparing themselves for that leap. The, the most mm. I can think of is Yard Act, which is very Cocker-esque in its jittery lyrics, very very active, very spoken word almost, which is what Cocker ended up doing on stuff like Sheffield Sex City and um, what you call Feeling it? Feeling Called Love. Feeling Called Seductive Love. Seductive Barry. The There's a few of them, yeah. There's a real beauty to the spoken word stuff that's like mm. just uh, David's Last Summer and Inside Susan. That's I think the mad. spoken word tracks are one of those aspects of Pulp that just gets better with every single album. Like when he starts doing them, he's good at them. But by yeah. the time you get to Wicker Man, it's just spectacular. It's amazing. I it, I think it's, it's one of those bands where it, there is consistent and real improvement from mm. every album. Yeah. And it's it's very rare that that happens. Usually you've got a, a peak and then a fall. And it's obviously the, the peak for most people is different class. Wow, what an amazing album. And then, oh, bit shaky there, lads. What's going on there? Yeah. And it's not until like 20 years later when people are like, well, actually, that's pretty accurate. What a sentiment that is for the generation that listened to that, that it becomes sort of full circle of there wasn't really a, a fall. Yeah, I mean, the themes on Wheel of Life are so strangely ahead of that time. I mean, we talk about Cocker's fondness for nature writing and his environmental themes, and that starts coming in then. But I remember what rock was like in 2001. No one was writing about that. There was still this stigma that if, you, if your song mentions plants, it's hippie shit. You know, that was still the attitude. I think the, the closest you could probably get was like murder on the dance floor, and that didn't even have plants in it. That was just good. Um, <laughs> which very different to rock at the time, which was like mm. what Lincoln Park and oh, Green God. Day, yeah, yeah, the, the glory days. <laughs> Kaiser Chiefs, maybe first Foo Fighters album. Oh. But that's <laughs> yeah. I think it's like I said earlier. It's going to take that new generation to go back to Britpop and not have the sort of the naffness that the phrase came to embody hanging over their heads yeah. and rediscover it to make people realize what the promise of this stuff is i mean by about the mid 2000s it's good it's turned a bit now i think largely by the mid 2000s i was just desperate for someone to write the lyrics like they cared again 
And I think that's changed a bit because hip hop has replaced rock as the kind of form around yeah. which all pop mm. music orbits. So you can't get away with writing shit lyrics. Like even if you're not making hip hop music, you have to make something where it's like, if this gets played on the radio straight after the new Kendrick Lamar single, exactly. I don't yeah. want people to laugh at me, you know? It's, it, it's kind of made it a, a bit awkward for me as well where it's like i've got to go and cover big rock artists from the 80s and then listen to their new stuff and it's as empty as their classics were but nobody Mm. really looked at them yeah like brian adams was great life really good fun all of his lyrics are the same it's very populist it's very welcoming it's very entertaining but those lyrics mean fuck all and it's summer of 69 is a good song but if, if you want like lyrical nourishment and food for thought and like just something to think about, you're not going to go to a rock artist, especially not when hip hop's around. Kendrick exactly. Lamar. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I'm not fond of the fellow, but Kanye West, I think Graduation is a superb album. Amazing lyrics on there. And it's like samples of Steely Dan. And like, it, it's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. Um, and I think it is the lack of competition rock really gave to hip-hop that's why it was mm. replaced yeah. um i think it's just a, a, a change of pace for people and i think it's a welcome one um because if not then we're stuck with essentially acoustic guitars and singing about oasis covers essentially yeah yeah it's it's good for people to realize that they're not old and audience sometimes it gives them the right kick up the yeah. ass yeah i think the very last like dregs of that rock indie scene that have managed to filter through are people like Ed Sheeran. You know, very eight cheesy singles, please. Lovely. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. That's fine. Like, there is always going to be a market for very light pop. And I think Ed Sheeran fits that bill perfectly. But there is always a market for great pop, which I think is where we came in, is it not? With, it uh, is. with Jarvis. Yeah. It is indeed. Yeah. But yes, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen for this week. If you liked what you heard, we do a Patreon where you can get a monthly bonus episode as well as full access to our other movie show, Directors Uncut, My Doctor Who Reviews, and much, much more besides. That's at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. But until next week, I've been Graham. I've been you. And we'll see you later. Mm-hmm.